Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Model Advisor podcast. I'm Ollie Smith, online producer for NMA, and this week we are delving into the sometimes murky world of overseas advice. I'm delighted to say that to do this, there is a man sat across from me. He's Alex Morris. He's Chief Executive and Managing Partner of Financial Relationships. Uh, and to help me, we're also joined by uh, Jack Gilbert, who's our uh, senior reporter here at NMA. Hello to both of you. Thanks for being here. Hello. Hello. Um, Alex, you advise expats. Yes. How did you get into that and how have you found the market so far? I've got into it when 18 years ago I started advising in London. My client bank was almost exclusively white British middle class and that was quite typical of a lot of advisors at that time. Um, that is, they are now the minority of the group of people I advise as London has just become far more cosmopolitan sure. um, and large influx of wealthy individuals. And so what these, the expats you're kind of advising, so where have they kind of tended to move to and what are the kind of products and the, the pieces of pension advice you're, you're giving them? The, the scope of where they're moving to is far and wide. Um, the United Arab Emirates, uh, the Caribbean, uh, US and Canada are popular, Australia New Zealand. Um, the, the type of advice we're looking at giving them is Typically, they've been away for some time before they've started to think about the advice that they need because they probably thought they were only going for two or three years mm. and then were attracted by the lifestyle, Our kids have settled in school, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, all of a sudden, these pieces of paper that they've had shoved up in the study or in the loft, um, uh, we're now seeing final salary transfers at record highs and also the stock markets at record highs. And therefore, these little bits of paper that they've got s stored away are actually worth a lot of money. And all of a sudden, when they become aware of this, mm. their interest is uh, sharpened um, to focusing on proper financial planning going forward. And, and the you know the financial planning you're giving. So, um, are you kind of recommending um, UK-based pensions, or you or what, what kind of pensions are you recommending, or generally to these these expats? It's very client-specific um, because you quite often have couples of different nationalities living in a country that's different to where they've come from, yeah. both come from. <laughs> so you've got to deal with a number of different anti-money laundering issues, a number of different... Uh, Americans are always difficult to deal with. For the, There's only a limited number of fund houses who will deal with them. There's only so many, so much advice you can give them. Um, so it's, it's, it's going through the nationalities, uh, where they're domiciled. They, mm. they all believe that they've been living somewhere for 20 years and they're domiciled there, mm. but they're not. If their father was born in England, it is almost impossible for them to remove their British domiciliary. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so that, that's the first part in the process. And actually, that's an education piece because in the first instance, a lot of them refuse to accept that they're domiciled anywhere but the country that they're living. <laughs> we then look at the where the the benefits are coming from. Is it a UK pension, a 401k in America, a superannuation in Australia? What local rules may apply? It may be a case of working with uh, an IFA from their home country. Mm. Uh, we're members of the Federation Euro uh, of European IFAs, so that's tremendously helpful if we have a European client. Yeah. We can look at working with the, the client locally, but maybe the advice would go through in Holland or Denmark or Germany through another advisor. Presumably that's uh, you know, a good way of kind of vetting uh, who you might be working with abroad. Um, do you have any sort of particular systems internally to 
you know, to flag any potential issues with advisors abroad that you might have to work with in that scenario? We, we would only work with an advisor who came recommended through a local lawyer that we know well or through someone like FIFA. Okay. Um, we're working out in Barbados. This is the Federation of International Financial <laughs> Advisors and it's not the, uh, the no, football. It is. It's nothing, no, no, it, it, this is a, a, a reputable establishment. Could have chosen a different uh, name, perhaps. They they could have chosen it's a, a little unfortunate, name. yes. I, I think when they set up... Um, they perhaps didn't think that one through. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Alex, I'm even sure that kind of you know what your your very high end um, uh, comes in terms of the spectrum of, of overseas transfer pension pension advice. Yes. But I understand that since you've kind of come into this market, you've seen some things which are much on the different spectrum in terms of the, the quality to, of pensions advice. I'm I, I've uncovered what is an alarming. Um, process and it's uh, being applied across the world I've seen it in the United Arab Emirates Kuwait uh, America j just to name a few um, and it's the same process being used where pensions are not being transferred into a UK regulated pension scheme and there are some very high quality low-cost self-invested personal pensions available on the UK pension market and there have been for some years now or previously into a cure-up arrangement, which again, if you pick the right provider, are low cost. And instead, we're seeing that pensions monies are being handed over to trust, pension trustees in these offshore jurisdictions who are charging fairly punchy fees, and there's a long, long list of them um, that we're seeing um, just for doing basic pension administration and they're taking fees up front and ongoing for their services and then passing bizarrely over the pension funds to an offshore bond wrapper which immediately is unnecessary. Is there any reason to use, recommend an offshore bond wrapper? No, none at all. There's not one and you'll not find a regulated high quality UK advisor that would confirm there was any purpose whatsoever for the bond wrapper. It serves a purpose for the advisor and the advisory firm. What is happening is they are able to use, because they're in the unregulated market, and the offshore bonds are in the offshore market, still fall under the old rules where commission is paid, pre-RDR. They are able to use the enhancement on the bond, which is typically between 7 and 9%, and take that as commission for themselves but show the holding as 100% allocation in the pension trustee wrapper. This way they can take an initial fee of typically around 3% from the initial advice, which they do disclose to the client. But what they don't disclose is that by taking the 7 to 9% up front from the bond wrapper, that the ongoing fees for the client are astronomical on an annual basis. Not only is a client paying for this 7 or 9%, 7-9%, they're also paying it at sort of credit card type interest rates mm. and they don't realise it. The impact on their final pension pot, um, you're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds here, because these offshore wealthy clients do not have small pension funds and with the day, with the, the fund values of today coming out of final salary pensions and stock markets where they are, they have half a million minimum, I would say, on a regular basis is the standard for these individuals. 
you're probably looking north of a million in most cases. So you know, you add one percent fee onto a million pounds, it's ten thousand pounds a year. But I, I would say that you're adding a lot more than that on in a percentage terms. And when you compound that up over 15, 20, 25 years, it, it's telephone numbers. Mm. Wow. And, and in terms of the, the, the advice processes, so are we talking about UK advisors here moving overseas, or are we talking about overseas advisors working with UK advisors? What I'm seeing is a, a mixture, Jack, where I think the worst case scenarios are coming from UK-based advisors going out to these jurisdictions for two weeks every month. What we're seeing in the worst cases is Brits selling to Brits. They, because they're coming from a UK office with a UK education, UK accent, etc., and perceived UK qualifications, I believe that nearly every one of these intelligent, sophisticated, high net worth individuals who have money are misled into believing or just assume themselves that these people are FCA regulated mm. and therefore they're getting the advice from back home whilst enjoying the benefits of the tax efficiency of living abroad and the mm. sunshine and everything else. When I came back to London from working in Tokyo and Melbourne um, straight after university, I, I knew 27 people from Shrewsbury where I grew up in London there's now only two of us left. The other 25 didn't go back home. They've all gone to live in different jurisdictions around the world, Bermuda, Barbados, uh, New York, Chicago, New Zealand, Australia, etc. And the one thing they've always done is every one of them has come back home to get financial advice, foreign exchange advice, mm -hmm. accountancy advice, legal advice. It's what they know and it's what they trust, but they also know how regulated the UK is. Mm -hmm and that you can't get away very long by, by taking money out of the till mm. or the cash register and by pulling the wool over people's eyes, you will get caught and you will be dealt with. So I believe that the first problem here is that we've got Brits targeting Brits. Mm. And, the, and British expats assuming they can trust these guys because they're British. Yep. What's come out of my conversations with the people in Miami, the Lloyd Brokers who are out there, um, the teachers in Abu Dhabi and, and the, the guys who are working out in Kuwait is that they seem knowledgeable, they're well-spoken, they're well-dressed, um, they're not edgy, they're not like your typical salespeople who are always a bit edgy and um, you know they're, they're always trying to work out how to pull the wool over someone's eyes. They seem very good at the meetings, they, they talk well and they're given this real assurance and assurity that the person they're dealing with it's very genuine and very honest. In a case um, that I'm looking at, and it's taken over a year to get to uncovering, I'd say about 70% of the charges that have taken place so far for my sister-in-law, who's very senior in the education department in Abu Dhabi. Um, there's a, about £120,000 of commission and fees being taken. Not that she has any paperwork for any of this. We've had to do some real digging. Mm. Um, on an £850,000 investment. And I'll give you the worst example, or one of the worst examples in there. We're still trying to liquidate a year on the commercial property part of the portfolio. Now you would think with the commercial property part of the portfolio that you would go and pick for £55,000 
two or three funds at least in that space, but perhaps that do different things. Because com commercial property can be broken down into a number of sub-asset classes, student accommodation. We're seeing airline hangers or the rental of airline hangers to major airlines uh, through Nim Nimrod, sorry, Doric Nimrod, um, the company, um, being used in, in, in portfolios more. The supermarkets, there's there's all sorts of different types of commercial property. There's retail, etc. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not just sort of a, a load of office blocks anymore. Um, what we saw here, and it's, it should be retail funds for a retail investor who's cautious and not so financially sophisticated, the, the, the purchase of a number of storage units. Ah. <laughs> right. Now, I know why they purchased them, because they took 8% commission mm. on the purchase alone of the commercial property, plus the money going into the bond, plus the trustee fee. So we've been triple hit with commission here. Mm. Those commercial units, um, it took us a month to get anyone to respond at the company once we'd identified it after nine months, who actually owned these units and where they were. The comment coming back from the new trustees, because the other ones went into liquidation, um, they normally take 12 to 14 days to respond to an email. I find this all very strange, all very liquid and very strange. Yeah. We've had the, the units on the market for three months and we haven't had a single inquiry. Mm. That's £55,000 of her retirement. In one asset, one, one commercial property asset. But why were we not using retail funds for a retail investor yeah. for the commercial property exposure? We've got this very specialist, singular investment, no diversity, that is proving to be incredibly illiquid. And it's because retail funds don't pay 8% commission. It's as simple as that. Mm. And when you look through a portfolio, so every portfolio probably has 15 or 20 stories like that about each component of its investments. Mm. You know, we had an income fund, Rudolph Wolf income fund. It took three months to sell down. It wasn't a daily liquidation. It wasn't like a yeah. week's process. It three months. Took three months to sell down. Uh, but if you look at the funds that they've chosen, they're not your mainstream funds. They're not your household names. No. And their regulation is a little different to what you'd see in the UK. And they're clearly paying between 5 and 8% on the entry to these funds. So I don't think we're seeing a double dipping at the cash register here. I think we're seeing a triple dipping. Mm. It's the initial 3% going in. The, the ongoing advisor fee, typically 0.75 to 1% they're charging. You then see money going in, coming out of the bond, which is hidden. The offshore bond. The offshore bond. And the clients, none of them have been aware of any of, of this, the way they're charged and the enhancements and how they work. And then you've got money going into the assets that they're acquiring. They're all paying an initial commission. Therefore, they're not FCA regulated, RDR compliant type funds that we would see in the UK. And that's how you get to £120,000 of commission and fees mm. for an £850,000 investment. Now, I don't, I don't care how many meetings you fly to and go to and do, and how much we do, £120,000. And I believe there were three meetings in total before my sister-in-law signed everything yeah, over. That's amazing. With your, I mean, that's um, a very interesting story, Alex, about your sister-in-law. I mean, so she was based in Abu Dhabi. How did it kind of come about that she, she received transfer advice? 
Um, simply, she had money from the sale of a house in London, plus her life savings. And she asked a friend at school, if you want an advisor, do you know anyone? And this is how these people are being passed around. Mm. Um, it's exactly the same out in uh, Miami, where Devere are the advisors used for most of the transfers out there. Uh, according to my insurance broker contacts, they came back home for the advice and got it from me. And it very, the advice I gave them, it was half the price that Devere had quoted. Mm. But this is just the initial quote. This doesn't take into account that all of the gentleman's friends, who are all Lloyd's brokers out and very senior ones out in Miami, had all been asking a lot of questions around the underlying charges they were paying and, and for full cost breakdown analysis from DeVere's. They also had started to sw become concerned and swap notes and th this sort of built up um, quite rapidly that for some reason they'd been put through these pension trustees into a Royal London 360 bond wrapper, offshore bond wrapper, and they didn't know why. What I have found from working with a number of Lloyds brokers over the last 18 years, and I have a large number of them on my books, from the company schemes to the individual advice, sorry, company pension schemes to individual advice, is they are financially literate, they are financially savvy, they don't just have money but they understand it and they pay a great deal of attention to product wrappers, tax and investment. Mm. So quite quickly they've picked up on there is a problem here but they don't quite know what it is. So Tom said, I'm coming back to uh, London, I've got a list of questions from the brokers, do you mind answering them? Can you shed any light on this? And he exposed everything. Mm. Um, now, the advice process that's been gone through in Miami is exactly the same one that's been gone through in the United Arab Emirates. I've also looked at a, a case in Kuwait recently, exactly the same process. So yeah, It's a triple dipping process. Kuwait, so you've seen English advisors go out to Kuwait? Yes, well you've got a lot of oil workers out there. Um, but interestingly, the advice given here was given to someone based in London. It's his son who is the advisor out in Kuwait, and he went out to see his son. They he wanted he he wanted some UK advice first, which I gave him. He went out to Kuwait, and they contradicted everything that I had to say. <laughs> and instead of putting in the man this very very substantial seven figure final salary transfer sum into either something like a low-cost SIP with AJ Bell, which was one of the examples I gave, or into um, the special deal that I arranged with Aegon for their 4,600 funds in their Aegon Retirement Choices contract. It went to a firm of trustees that I hadn't heard of and my due diligence didn't like the look of, and it went to a Royal London 360 bond. Mm. Now, if you go into an offshore bond, not only are you adding another layer of ex uh, uh, the highest cost, actually, apart from the, these fund acquisitions, you're, already, you're also restricting massively your investment options as they only can invest in funds. They can't do commercial property, just 
Um, you can do discretionary fund management with some of them, but it's quite limited, the firms that you can use. So you're very restricted on the investment options that you have in an offshore bond. And it obviously doesn't provide any retirement options, unlike a normal, bog-standard, very sophisticated, low-cost SIP, like the one you get with AJ Bell or Aegon or Scottish Widow. And you're going to draw down and you have a monthly income. Yeah. This, this gentleman has been taken out of a UK FCA-regulated environment and placed overseas, mm. where if it all goes horribly wrong, I'm not sure how much of his money will be safe. There's no FSES for overseas mm. advice? No. Can I just ask, what's driving this from a sort of human behavioural perspective? Talking to triple dip on someone's fund like that, is that greed? Is it greed alone? Uh, what is the behavioural? It is greed alone. It is pe people who can't cut the mustard of standard regulation exams in the UK. Post-RDR? I would say pre and post-RDR, actually. Okay. A post RDR being, yeah, got it, got rid of a lot of people. Uh, yeah. Partly because of the average age in the industry. Since I've been in the industry, I've always been the youngest person in the room by some way, and the average age is always hovered around fifty-eight. Um, so some people are naturally retiring. Um, yeah, I think if I was a couple of years away from retiring, an RDR two or RDR three comes in, and there's a whole load more exams, five years of study, and that sort of thing. I don't think I would. I probably well, just say that, that uh, enough's enough. Um, but no, in, in the post-RDR environment, people have, have looked at this and thought, I can still earn commissions abroad, it's sunny, it tends to be tax-efficient or tax-free environments, yeah. and they are targeted with little training to go and sell product. It's like the worst of this industry 30 or 40 years ago, and they can make... One of the stories going around the offshore market is there are and they they are known there are advisors who will do one maybe two cases a year and don't need to do any more if you're earning 120,000 pounds tax free from a, an 850,000 pound case which is at the lower end of this market yeah. depending on how whether you want a Ferrari and a Porsche, and how big you want your penthouse to be in one of these locations, you might have to do two cases a year, or one bigger one. Yeah. But the transfers I'm seeing are in the two million plus range, or the investments are in the two million. So you just need to do the multiple of, of 850 into two and a bit million, it's yeah. sort of threefold. And it all stacks up. And they're earning three, four, five hundred thousand pounds a year off one or two cases. That's amazing. And I suppose, you know, looking, you mentioned the kind of advisors in Kuwait, English advisors. I mean, you don't think they're going to Kuwait for the weather or for, um, I mean, what, you know, what do you think is driving them to, to Kuwait and what's... Um, what's, it, what's simply driving them is that it's, a, it's somewhere where they can operate. They've somehow found themselves there. They feel comfortable with it. Yeah. They don't mind the travel. And basically, you know, when did I wake up in the morning and think I want to go and be an advisor in the desert? It's, it doesn't it's, make sense. It doesn't make sense. And what, where I think I feel most strongly about this is when I came into this industry, 
I think this is when the industry started to change for the better, not not because of me. When so, you when no, you no, no, not, not simply because of me. The, the <laughs> correlation, of course. I, I, I'd love to think that that was the effect, but um, it was the era in which I came in. I did my training and got to know from different courses um, that I was sent on um, that we had to go through different exams. Five or six young advisors. Uh, we're all around the same age in our early forties now where we'd come from university, we had the choice of what industries we went into, we were well connected, and basically we chose to be IFAs, and we chose to, to follow under much intense scrutiny and criticism from our managers and from our so-called peers, an advice-based route, because it was still very much a sales industry, yeah. rather than a product flog sales industry approach. Um, and the you know, very, you know, you sat in a room with 50 male advisors, typically, there might be one female in there, and a lot of testosterone, a lot of ego, a lot of attitude. You're, you're A, half their age, and B, I think they're a bit frightened of you because you're clearly sharper and know more than they do already in the early days. But we've, we, we fought through that to get to the point where the regulator recognised the problems and implemented RDR. Five years post RDR, it's been painful, it's been hard even for quality advisors with a quality business. They turned off our main income stream overnight mm. and expected the UK population just to automatically understand and accept paying fees. Mm. Even the wealthier clients were like, well, I'm not paying, yeah, that comes out of the product, there you go. Very, we tried and tried for years to get people to pay fees and or to put the money, the, the trail, on a fee-related basis onto the contract. And it's been really hard work. We've got there, our businesses are now better, they're more robust, they're more valuable as a result of this. And it's a, it, it, it could have been better in the way it was implemented and handled, but it's worked. And we've gone through, my generation have gone through this to build a better, robust advice community, for which we don't get credit from the regulator, we don't get credit necessarily from the press and others. But to then see this going on, yeah. at a level, it, this is way beyond what we used to see in the bad old days in the UK, way beyond. And what concerns me is that there are three main insurance companies with UK arms that are household names that know this is going on and are turning a blind eye to it and they are accepting the business. And we're not talking about one or two cases, probably one or two cases a day, yes. Mm. They are taking these substantial amounts of money from pension trustees into offshore bonds, and they know exactly where that money's come from. So it's their offshore bonds that are facilitating the commission payments? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They are implicit in this whole process. Although they're not giving advice. They're not giving advice. They're, and you could look at it that these tax wrappers, wherever they are in the world, whatever type they are, are receptacles for funds, for monies of different types. Yeah. And so. On that basic premise, you could say, okay, um, they're not giving advice, it's a, but then where is the regulation or the regulated advisor status for these firms who are placing the business? The regulation in the Arab world is almost non-existent. Mm. Some of them have four or five different regulators. As long as you, regulate, as long as you sign up to one of them, you're okay. And that's all you have to do? It's the Wild West. Mm. Yeah, that, that's basically all you have to do. And they, 
they don't they're not really interested in what foreigners do to foreigners mm. um, you, if you misadvised a local I think you'd have problems but broadly speaking they're not interested in what Brits do to Brits mm. in the desert and the Brits are choosing are choosing to use Brits because they, they think it's they can trust it's what they feel comfortable with yeah, yeah. and I, I really do go back to the beginning where I feel that even if they don't say we're FCA regulated, we've got offices in Hartford, we've got offices in London, people automatically think, oh, the, the, the bliss of the regulated environment. So all of my friends said to me, we're going to come back, can you give us advice, can you give um, friends of mine advice? You know, we, we know how regulated you are, we know what you have to go through on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. You know, that gives us a lot of safety and security. We feel good about that. It might put you through the mixer, but we feel good about it because we know our money's safe with you, and we're, but we don't know out here how they're regulated or lack of. And often, I mean, do you, are you seeing examples of like big groups of com- like a group group advice firm that might have a UK based arm that is FCA regulated, but they'll have an arm in Abu Dhabi or Kuwait or somewhere where there's no FCA regulation correspondence. I think in a very small percentage that might be the okay. case. That might that might be the case, um, but no, they typically um, don't want anything to do with the UK and the regulator. They distance themselves well away from it because even if it's going on in another country, the FCA will get involved, mm. um, so they don't want any attachment to an established proper regulator. So the SEC or the FCA, for example, they're still well clear of that. What do we do to fix this? Because it's obviously cross-border, uh, isn't it? It's in, involving lots of different um, you know, nations and systems um, where they exist. What If there were sort of a, some sort of quick fixes or ideas that you have to fix all this, what, what would you say needs to happen? To, to fix the problem, um, there is... I don't believe a quick fix in terms of the education process that individuals need to go through or how we pull into line governments and regulators from different countries because the the basis of this needs to be we need to make people aware and protect Brits from Brits. We need to make people aware of the problems. There's an education piece there. The quickest route to stopping this is the insurance companies rejecting the business yeah. that's coming in from pension, and particularly for pension monies into offshore bonds. They have, pension monies have no place in an offshore bond. Mm. That would be the first art of the ten. I would also ask the insurance companies to look at their moral compass and to return the business that they've received over the years mm. to the rightful home yeah. and ask it to be put in a proper wrapper, i.e. a proper low-cost pension wrapper in the UK. Now, I'm aware of the logistics of that and the paper burden and all the rest of it, but this is what we're having to do when we find these Brits who've been abused by Brits. Yeah. And uh, which are there any particular insurance companies you've seen kind of come up time and time again? Royal London 360. Which is not owned by Royal London. Which is not owned by them. Um, and Friends Life International are two of the main companies I've seen. RL360 are the main one. Um, Candle Life are also one of the other providers. I haven't seen as much of RL360 have been definitely by a long way the biggest um, offender or insurance company taking on board this type of business. 
So if we if we saw these insurance companies stop offering these offshore bonds, you think the market could improve quite dramatically? Well, if you look at um, the how, how the Europe market overnight for, outside of the EEA was killed by the twenty five percent transfer tax, it which came, came it was announced on the budget twenty seventeen. Yeah. Yep. So that came out March the 9th and it just stopped things overnight almost. So it came into effect in April that year. It, it did. There was. Um, it was announced on March the 9th and it came into April that year, it came into effect April that year. Um, those are the sorts of measures where you just sort of say, well, whether you're a regulator or whether you're a government or that firm, you just say, stop taking it. I think um, whilst they have UK arms, as you rightly point out, RL 360 are actually part of Royal London, whereas Friends Life International are parts of Friends Life. Um, and You've got to, as a regulator in the UK, you've then got a bit of pull on them, mm. saying to their UK arm, come on, we don't like what we're seeing here overseas. Um, so I think the only way of ex, uh, of dealing with this is by putting out a podcast like this, writing to the insurance companies, asking them for their opinion of things. And the advisor community with City uh, with CityWire and New Model Advisor and quality, you know, uh, Publications that people actually listen to and, and do read and take seriously, um, you know, in the paper, newspaper world, the Financial Times would be a good example. Putting this out there, and if we have to, just shaming the companies into mm. to stopping doing this practice that they are party to and aware of, um, but also make it would make the general public more aware of the problem. Yeah, and I think with kind of stories like this, it's almost <coughs> easy to, to kind of just look at the numbers and the you know the high commissions being paid. But obviously, there's you know, there's some real victims out there, and some people have gotten themselves into some bad situations. Well, the other problem was not just the charging on my sister-in-law's contract, and these are liquid funds like the property one. Post-Brexit, we all saw the markets go up quite quickly and quite considerably, and they, they bumped up again when Donald Trump was elected. It's not just the equity markets that went up, it was the, pretty much across the asset classes. Values rose and we're now at record highs across the board. In that, in that era, that 12-month that period, instead of her fund going up around £300,000, it went down by that amount. That's strange. How mm. did that happen? We've also got a cautious investor in some incredibly sophisticated, esoteric offshore products and funds. So the global energy fund that she's in has got to be the highest risk, most volatile asset, fund, stock, whatever you want to call it, that I've ever seen. You can, she's a teacher and you can tell immediately when to want to, she's very cautious, very conservative. How has she ended up? I mean, Giving it a 10 out of 10 on the risk score, 10 being the highest, doesn't do it justice. It's like you know, 100 out of 10. It is yeah. the most aggressive, adventurous fund proposition I've ever seen in my career. I couldn't have dreamt it up. Yeah. So I would give myself a 10 out of 10 risk profile. I've been self-employed all my life. I enjoy risk when I understand it, and I only take it when I understand it. But I still have taken a huge amount of risk in my business activities, my pension portfolio, etc., and all my investments. I wouldn't go near this. I couldn't touch it with a barge pole. 
and I, and I consign myself off as a genuine sophisticated investor and yet I would not go near one of the investments in this portfolio as being far too volatile, aggressive and high risk. Mm. And you've got someone who's a genuine four out of ten, three and a half, four out of ten, every day of the week, always has been and always will be. Yeah. So the underperformance of this fund has, has been just as damaging, if not more so, than the underperformance. One of the, the assets that has been bought, it's, meant to be, it's badged as a bond fund, it's about £40,000 put in it. Its current value is just over 5000 It's gone from 40000 down wow. to five. That No one can explain that to me with any rationale or logic. And not certainly a rationale or logic I'm going to agree with. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So in a period, so we've lost out on the last two years of investment growth. It's taken me nearly a year to get around out of all of this and actually get um, the basic information you would request on a transfer value analysis. Yeah, at which point, yeah, and during that time, her capital's still at risk. Capital's still at risk. Um, client is extremely stressed out. Yeah. Trust me implicitly, but is extremely stressed out. Um, capital's at risk, as you rightly say. We're missing on the upside of the market, and still a year on from the handing me the initial paper and said, would you mind just having a look at this and making sense of it for me? I've still got some storage units in Timbuktu um, that you know, no one's interested in and we can't sell. They are actually in the UK, but I'm, I'm giving an example. I, mean, the, the, I, mean, I just don't know where they even found these storage units. They may um, as well be in Timbuktu. Yeah, they may as well. There's another 54,000 to add to the 35 lost on this bond fund, then I'm not sure we're going to get back. Mm. We might get 10, 15, I reckon. I, but I know it paid 8% commission. So the triple dipping was in full effect here. 3% yeah. up front, 7 to 9% out of the bond, and 8% on the acquisition of the storage units. And that's how you get 850,000, you get 120,000 yeah. in commissions. Those are the sorts of how the figures have worked out. And so, I imagine this has had quite a quite a big effect on her on her life and, and the family's life for the last couple of years. Th well, she she's not financially sophisticated and didn't understand any of it. And the girl was very nice and very helpful. Tea and biscuits routine. The tea and biscuits meeting, fantastic. And what I, one of the things I did find strange, because I was going through some of the emails, was if you'd like me to do a fund review or look at anything for you or move anything around, let me know. Because um, I'll be in, I'm only around for the next week, mm. and I'll need to be quick to do it. What they're indicating, oh yeah, I'll, I'd like a review meeting. They didn't realise the review meeting was costing the money. It wasn't clear. Mm. We eventually got the terms and conditions and, and the four pages of charges for everything you can imagine, including um, you know making tea at the meeting. Um, so the next thing would have been well, okay. Having a look at the overall picture, we're, we're thinking we should move a bit over here and take a bit out of there and put it over there, which was then regenerating another 5 to 8% commission on the entry into the new product. Yeah, yeah. So we're now into the quadruple dipping phase. Wow. But this is happening day and night, Kuwait, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Miami. It might be different firms that are doing it, but they are all following the same process and the same motive, which is simply pound signs. Yeah. 
it's greed and nothing but. Wow. Um, I think that's just about all that we've got time for, uh, I fear. Um, but thanks so much to Alex for coming in. Really appreciate you uh, being here. It's been great to meet you. Um, Jack, thanks for coming in too. Thanks, Much appreciate. Thank you. Um, Join us again next week for the next episode of the NMA podcast, which will be all about what it's like to run an advice firm while experiencing severe illness. In the meantime, do check out our podcast back catalogue, which is growing quickly. And if you like what if you like what you hear, please do leave us a positive review. Thanks and goodbye. Well, after we recorded this podcast, we contacted Friends Life Providence, Royal London 360, Canada Life and Devere Group to ask for their responses. Royal London 360 replied to say they would not comment and we received no reply from Canada Life. However, a spokesperson for Aviva, which put Friends Provident up for sale in July last year, did say the following. Friends Provident International is fully licensed and regulated in all jurisdictions it operates in and sells bonds only in those jurisdictions through authorised advisors. This means we comply with the applicable business acceptance principles and will only act once we receive authorised instructions from customers. Friends Provident International does not provide advice on the suitability of funds and does not take part in discussions between customers and their advisors. We did also receive a response from a spokesperson for Devere Group who said the following. Devere Group prides itself on always giving best advice. At the beginning of any client relationship, we sit down with clients for a fact find and work out how to best meet their financial objectives with them. We work with them to ensure that they fully understand all products and they're giving a cooling period before any agreement is made. We pride ourselves on providing complete transparency and full disclosure on the products, charges, the service expectations and the level of protection for our clients. While it is difficult to comment on individual cases without having read the nature of issue, wrappers are used for a number of reasons. Typically, they provide a stronger structure for most clients and depending on location for retirement, an insurance wrapper can give extra tax advantages to clients.